This is episode 195 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. And today we have two wonderful guests, and I love this episode, and I'll tell you why I love this episode so much. Uh, Caroline Traub actually reached out to us. She's a wonderful clinician um, from the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, reached out to us about a paper that she had read, and she had connected with the researcher who lives in Switzerland, and she's been implementing his protocols, and they've had wonderful dialogue back and forth that she reached out to us and wondered if we'd like to hear about how they've been working together, how they've implemented it, and it is just, to me, the most beautiful marriage of clinical researcher practice of how clinicians can actually implement what they're reading, how researchers can help us walk through kind of the muddiness that may that we may encounter. Um, so again, I just, I love this so much. I love this concept. I'm so glad that Caroline reached out to us and I'm so glad that they both agreed to come on and chat. So Anyways, Caroline Traub is from the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. She decided she wanted to be an SLP at the age of 16 when she shadowed a family friend in the school. Throughout her college experience, she fell in love with the medical side of the career and obtained her Bachelor's of Science in Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Georgia with summa cum laude honors. She went on to obtain her Master of Science in Speech and Hearing Sciences at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She was then hired on full-time to complete her CFY at Kennestone Hospital in Marietta, Georgia, a comprehensive stroke center and level two trauma center where she still works today. Since beginning her career at the hospital, she's been involved in multiple department initiatives, including the SLP Journal Club, interdisciplinary collaboration with nursing and dietitians, and projects to approve productivity and therapy orders at the next level of care after the hospital. And our other guest is Dr. Marion Galovic. Uh, He's an adult neurologist specializing in epilepsy. He is currently chairing the epilepsy unit at the University Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland. His research interests also involve swallowing disorders after stroke, neuroimaging, and prognostic models. So again, love this episode. Hope you all enjoy it as well. And if you ever (laughs) do want to recommend a topic, a person, anything, I'm totally open to it. Um, Please just email in podcast at TeresaRichard.com and we'll chat with you about it. We'd love to get you on the air. So thank you. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Hi. How are you? All right. We have two wonderful guests this morning, which I am so excited about. Uh, We have Caroline Traub, who is an SLP, and we also have Dr. Marion Galovic, and I will let them introduce themselves to you guys, and I think you're going to really, really love this episode. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, um, Caroline, if you want to tell the people who you are. I'm Caroline. I'm an acute care speech pathologist. That's the setting I've been practicing in since I graduated, and I absolutely love it. 
Um, I'm so honored to be here today. And it's so cool. Such a small SLP world. A couple of my Wellstar colleagues have been on the show before. Kara Jones works at one of my sister hospitals and um, Valeria or Libby Gary works at my hospital at the outpatient campus. So just cool to be here and represent our team and speak more about how we're involving um, interesting and novel research into our clinical practice. Well, thank you. Marion, who are you? Hi, um, my name is Marian Galovic. Um, I'm an adult neurologist and I'm uh, originally from Slovakia, but uh, currently I work in, in Switzerland and um, that's where we've done most of our research on swallowing after stroke. Um, I've done a lot of research on, on swallowing after stroke, uh, dysphagia and so on. And uh, currently I'm, I'm mainly working in epileptology, which is a bit of a different topic. So I'm heading the, the epileptology department here at the University Hospital in Zurich. Um, not a lot of swallowing problems there, uh, to be honest. Uh, but it's a huge pleasure to be invited to this. Um, I'm, I'm really honored uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to discussing uh, our results with you. And um, I think this is, this is great because um, usually when, when, you, when you publish research, you don't get a lot of feedback. And um, I think it was, I was so honored that Caroline uh, really um, came up with this idea, invited me. And um, it's, it's nice to see that um, whatever you publish, that it gets read by people and that actually also people use it. Uh, I think that's, uh, um, that's the best thing that can happen. And we feel very honored that uh, people actually use um, um, the models that we developed. Yeah. So Marion, that's exactly why I created this podcast, to be honest, because I felt like I just got in, you know, I was just reading these really fascinating papers and reading these journals. I'm like, has anybody heard of this concept? Like, this is life changing. Like, we need to know these as clinicians to help our patients. Did anybody know this was even buried in this journal? Um, so that's honestly, you know, why I started the podcast and the impetus for it. So thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we found each other. Yeah, congratulations yeah. to that. I think that's a great effort. And I think this needs to be done. And um, science is frequently done in sort of uh, um, uh, very isolated spaces. And uh, it's nice to have a discussion about it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, Caroline, I'm glad you made the big, scary effort of reaching out to Marion. You know, he seems like a big, scary right. researcher. So yeah, I, th I think it's Not always so funny when people are like, should I should I email the researcher? It's like, they're a person. Please do. Yeah, very, you know? very casual. I'm like, I'm just going to email some medical doctors on a different continent. It's fine. This is, this is normal for me. But yeah. he was super nice and responsive. Yeah, but, I mean, that's... Yeah, it's how the profession grows. You know, it's how we get information from the labs, you know, to our patients. So, well, I love it anyway. So, um, all right. So what are we going to talk about today? So Caroline suggested the topic. Maybe maybe you want to go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So we'll talk all about the predictive swallowing score, how clinicians can implement it as a really realistic and helpful prognostic tool at the bedside for our stroke patients to predict severity of dysphagia after an acute stroke. Um, talk about the recovery process and some specific numerical values that we can get from using the predictive swallowing score to set more realistic prognosis and expectations for patients and families and the medical doctors involved in the care. Awesome. All right. So we chose to use the same methodology pretty much as the research article and um, rolling out this scale with the same patient population as the article to make the research as applicable to the patients as possible and be able to extrapolate the data. So alike the research article that Dr. Galovic wrote, that Dr. Galovic and colleagues were using patients who have ischemic strokes of any site of lesion in the brain, no hemorrhagic strokes, since they had excluded those patients from the research. We are not using the predictive swallowing score on patients who have any known history of dysphagia, documented dysphagia. 
we're using the predictive swallowing score in patients who um, were admitted within the first 48 hours of stroke symptoms. So we're kind of excluding that subacute stroke group since that aligns with his research paper. We are using it in patients where the speech pathologist is getting to the initial evaluation within four days of hospital admission, which frequently we're getting to them much faster than that. We're using it in patients who have minimal to no pre-stroke disability, so a modified Rankin scale of zero to one, none or slight disability at baseline. For some context, that's a rating scale that goes all the way up to five, and neurologists will frequently document that on admission to help them prognosticate how the stroke is going to affect this patient based on their disability before they came in. And then lastly, we decided as a team to not use the predictive swallowing score if the patient was endotracheally intubated for more than 48 hours, since we felt that post-extubation dysphagia could confound the neurogenic dysphagia related to stroke. So that's kind of how we're picking patients to use this um, predictive swallowing score on. And I think now Marion will speak more to kind of what the scale is and what their research and results and discussion found. Right. Um, so the original idea of this was um, that we had frequent discussions at, at our stroke unit um, regarding whether patients should receive enteral tube feeding or not and uh, which type of feeding should be started. And um, so this was the whole impetus for, for, for the research project. Um, and we realized that there was not much data on that. And um, um, most guidelines recommend to, uh, to start enteral tube feeding quite early. So within the first um, days or maybe even within the first 48 hours after stroke. Now, the issue is that um, they also require us to predict uh, who will benefit from, from the enteral tube feeding. Um, and um, so the guidelines slightly differ on this, but uh, most guidelines would agree that if dysphagia uh, persists for more than seven days, uh, or at least a couple of days, um, the patient would benefit from nasogastric tube feeding. And uh, if the dysphagia would uh, persist for more than a month or around four weeks' time, uh, they would benefit from uh, uh, PEC feeding. And sort of these are sort of the cutoffs that we need to work with. Uh, but how can you predict um, this very early on so you can start feeding within the first two days? And uh, there's not an instrument that helps really uh, clinicians to do this. Um, and so as a first step, we, we gathered data from a large group of stroke patients um, uh, prospectively and looked into, into prognostic markers of um, swallowing recovery after stroke. And we realized that actually swallowing recovery can be pretty well predicted. Um, so overall, around half of all stroke patients will have swallowing problems. And that's a huge proportion of patients. And this will have huge impact on, on um, uh, their outcome. Uh, this will increase their risk uh, to have uh, chest infections uh, uh, or to get aspiration. So this will have a huge impact on, on the outcome of these patients. And we need to make these treatment decisions very early on. Now, out of, of, out of these 50% of patients who will have um, swallowing problems in the initial stage, around two-thirds of them will recover in the first seven days. So this recovery goes pretty quickly. Uh, but after that, it slows down a bit, and only half of those who still have dysphagia uh, after the first week will recover in the first month. Um, so this is largely uh, what, what, what we would expect from, from a general stroke population that we see on a stroke unit. Now, how do we predict um, which of these patients may, may um, have persisting dysphagia? Uh, so we developed a prognostic model and we um, had a couple of parameters that make a lot of sense. Uh, so 
The first one and the most, most simple one is, is age. Uh, so if a, a person is uh, more than 70 years old, um, they are at high risk of uh, persisting dysphagia. Uh, and now there are two parameters that are related to the stroke, stroke uh, that the patient suffered. Uh, so the first one is the stroke severity. So if the stroke is particularly severe, then the patient has a higher risk of having longer lasting dysphagia. And also the stroke location. Um, so a specific location in, in the brain hemisphere, which is called the frontal operculum, uh, increases the risk of having very long lasting dysphagia. And this is based on a couple of studies we've done previously. And then there are two other parameters that are really important. And these are even more important than, than the age and, and the stroke characteristics. And that's the um, type of swallowing impairment um, at the initial evaluation. And we used two scales. The first one is uh, the functional oral intake scale, which measures the overall impairment of oral intake. Um, and the second one is the uh, any two scale by Daniels, uh, which is um, a scale which assesses the risk of aspiration. And if any of these um, show higher values, then uh, the patient is at, at higher risk of uh, having long-term dysphagia. So we had these risk factors and um, the question was, how can we make this really practical? How can we enable uh, SLPs to really use this or other stroke physicians to really use this and to make a prediction uh, in their cases? And then the whole process of building a prediction model started. And we um, wanted to validate it, to have it externally validated, to show that it actually works not only in our center, uh, but it works also in other centers. And in order to do this, we had um, overall five centers in Switzerland, uh, which around 280 uh, patients that uh, we followed prospectively. And uh, we showed that um, this model works relatively well to, to predict the need for nasogastric tube feeding or the need for pack feeding uh, within the first days of the stroke. And so the overall conclusion is that this, this may actually be helpful for physicians and SLPs to uh, predict um, how quickly dysphagia will recover and whether the patient will need to get uh, enteral tube feeding. And that these decisions can already be made at the bedside and very early on. So in terms of modeling and coming up with the patient's predictive swallowing score, or what we can abbreviate PRESS score, we'll generate a score value ranging from zero to 10. So zero being the best score, meaning the patient has an excellent dysphagia prognosis after the acute stroke, ranging up to 10, meaning the patient has a poor dysphagia prognosis after the acute stroke. For anybody who wants to follow along and look at the calculation on the model, you can use the smartphone application that Dr. Galovic and colleagues published called Press Calc, P-R-E-S-S-C-A-L-C, or you can actually look at figure two in the research article on page 566. So this will help us delineate how many press points the patient is accumulating. So like he mentioned, age is the first factor. If the patient is over 70 years old or over, they get one press point towards their overall score due to less functional reserve, less neuroplasticity. If a patient has an initial NIH stroke score or NIH of five or less, they get zero press points towards their overall score. If they have between six and 13 NIH, they get one press point towards their overall score. And if they have an NIH of 14 or greater, they get two press points towards their overall score. The NIH stroke score is easily found in the neurologist consult note. That itself is a scale that ranges from zero to 42, zero being no focal neuro deficits, 42 being profound deficits. And that's pretty easy to track down in the medical chart. 
One thing that my team and I thought about from our practice pattern is we work at a comprehensive stroke center. So we're actually frequently seeing patients who may have come in with an initial NIH of 25, for example, but then they went for emergent thrombectomy for clot removal. They went for TPA or the clot busting drug, and then their NIH could improve quite a bit to like an eight. And so in that case, we're counting the NIH of eight, and that's how we're practicing and using that. That's the snapshot in time we're capturing the patients, and that's kind of their new baseline after their neural interventions. Stroke location is important, like Marian mentioned. If the patient does not have a lesion of the frontal operculum, then that's zero press points towards the overall score or a good thing. If they do have a lesion of the frontal operculum, that is one press point towards the overall score, given that that's been found in Dr. Galovic and colleagues' prior studies to be significantly predictive of a worse swallowing recovery, since it's so engrossed in motor control and that premotor cortex, that Broca's area. Another consideration that we had here is how exactly do we know as speech pathologists whether the frontal operculum is implicated in the stroke or not? Because sometimes the head imaging reports may not explicitly comment on it, and we're not trained to look at images of the brain and know for sure based on the MRI and know. So obviously there's the process of elimination. If there's no frontal lobe involvement, it's safe to say there's no frontal operculum involvement. We decided as a team that best practice would be asking the neurologist on a case-by-case basis if we're uncertain if there's frontal lobe involvement, if there's something subcortical mentioned in the head imaging or some frontal lobe involvement, we're not quite sure if the operculum is part of it. Asking the doctor would be the best practice, but Realistically, they may not always be available. So the other strategy I came up with was I did give my team a list of keywords that are all geographically near the frontal operculum. So those include the insula, the premotor cortex, Broca's area, inferior frontal gyrus, Broadman's areas 44 and 47. So if we are seeing several or all of those being mentioned in the head imaging report, even if the frontal operculum is not explicitly mentioned, we may still be inclined to rate them as such that, that there's probably some degree of frontal operculum involvement. Does that sound like a fair you know, use of resources, Marion, in your opinion, from a physician standpoint? Yes, that's a very clever approach, actually. And this is not easy. I, I totally agree, particularly if you only have acute imaging like a CT. Um, and the frontal operculum is a, a pretty small area in the brain, so it's not quite easy to really find it on, on brain imaging. Um, in the app, we have example images um, that should help there a bit. Um, yes. And I agree that frequently it's, it's not reported in, in, in the radiologist report. So um, in the end, the best thing to do is really just uh, have a quick look at the images and try to find those slices that we have in the app to locate the frontal baculum and see whether there's any damage located there. And then the final two clinical factors that the speech pathologist is weighing in our evaluations, you had mentioned the patient's risk of aspiration based on a scale called the NE2 scale. So you're looking at basically how they do with us in the clinical bedside swallow evaluation and counting up how many of the following six clinical abnormalities are present. Dysphonia, dysarthria, abnormal gag reflex, abnormal volitional cough, coughing after the swallow, voice change after the swallow. If zero to three of those factors are present, that's considered a relatively good thing and they get zero press points towards their overall score. If four or five are present, they get one press point towards their overall score. And if all six of those are present, or if the patient is so severe in their aphasia or level of alertness that you can't adequately assess, then they get the maximum value of six. And that translates to two press points towards their overall score. The fifth and final clinical factor um, that determines a patient's press score is how impaired their oral intake is based on the functional oral intake scale. So basically, if the speech pathologist is recommending an oral diet 
aka a voice of four or greater, then that's a good thing. They get zero press points towards their overall score. If the patient is somewhere in the middle where they're primarily tube feeding dependent, but they can inconsistently or maybe consistently take some degree of PO, like maybe puree snacks or something, then they get two press points towards their overall score. And lastly, if you're recommending strict MPO, strictly tube feeding for nutrition, maybe some ice chips or sips of water for pleasure or to um, keep their swallowing muscles moving, then that's still a voice of one or fully tube dependent for nutrition. And that's four press points towards overall score. So that's the breakdown of the scale and special considerations of, for speech pathologists and how we kind of have to weigh and calculate those factors. Marianne, can I ask how you, how you decided on those six clinical indicators? I think Teresa might be referring to the six clinical factors in the NE2 scale. I think, are you talking about the dysphonia, dysarthria, abnormal cough, abnormal gag? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so, so that's a published scale by, um, uh, by Daniels uh, and colleagues. And um, it's being frequently used, at least in Switzerland. I'm not quite sure about the US, uh, but I think it's, it's a pretty commonly used scale that, that is a screening marker of um, the risk of aspiration. Um, so it's not a replacement for apparative testing, uh, instrumental testing for aspiration risk, uh, but it's a screening marker and it performs really well. Um, and um, I think this is really helpful to give us an idea whether there is a, a risk of, of aspiration in these cases or not. And I had read that um, initial article, Daniels 1997, to educate myself more on the NE2 scale. And it was interesting. They found that out of those six clinical factors that the patients who consistently had any combination of two or more of those six clinical factors, that they were consistently at a higher risk to be diagnosed with a moderate to severe dysphagia on video fluoroscopy. So that's where the name comes from, NE2 scale. But in the context of the press paper, they actually need four factors before it starts accumulating press points for them. Gotcha. All right. Thank you for explaining that. Right. So what's also interesting is I think that the score needs to be calculated in sort of collaboration of disciplines. I mean, uh, we need really uh, the SLPs uh, who look at the swallowing uh, in, the, in the patient. We need neurologists who sort of assess um, um, the stroke severity, the stroke location. And I think this is a really nice multidisciplinary approach in, in, in these cases, which is just highlights how important it is to, to work um, uh, with different dis- disciplines in these um, frequently complicated cases. Yeah. And what, what, what's also shown in the model is that the, the best predictors are actually the quality of swallowing um, at the initial exam. So if that is severely impaired, um, then the risk of having uh, long-term impairment is, is highest. Yeah. I did find it interesting that the place that you could accumulate the most press points is that maximum score of four on impairment of the oral intake or basically the speech pathologist diet recommendations. I just found it interesting that most weight was placed there. So you kind of have to count on people who are doing their job well to make good recommendations um, in order for the model to carry over in practice. Exactly. And that's, that's a bit of the tricky point. And the, the, the point is tricky because um, the assessment might, might differ from one center to the other. Uh, now, what we said in uh, what we saw in the external validation of the model is that it actually performed pretty well, but this is definitely tricky, and uh, it needs an experienced rater to have uh, proper ratings on on the impairment of oral intake. About how long did you find that speech pathologists and neurologists were being trained before using this in practice? Did you find it just took a couple hours? That's difficult to say. So. Um, 
When we did um, the study initiation visits, um, those usually took around one or two hours. And we had some training for the SLPs. Um, but because most of them were really using these, these uh, scales already in, in Switzerland, that there was not really much training um, that was necessary. Um, and I think the scales are quite well described in the original papers. But obviously, uh, this requires um, um, a rater to really know uh, these scales, to, to read the, the literature and, and to try it out a couple, on a couple of cases before they can start implementing the press score. I agree. That's something I definitely needed to do before I took it back to my team. This is actually the first article that I presented to my acute care team's speech pathology journal club. So it was an awesome way to start it out with a brand new item. But yeah, I had to read and understand the NA2 scale, understand the importance of the frontal operculum and have all that background information before we could really start implementing it. Exactly. So it's not, not completely straightforward. But uh, I think it can be assessed at bedside, so which is which is the strength of the model. Absolutely. So again, anybody who wants to follow along in terms of the numbers I'm going to talk about, you can use the smartphone application Press Calc, or you can actually look on Figure Three of the research article on page 567. So once we have our appropriate patient population, we've generated their press score by weighing out the five relevant clinical factors, um, age, stroke severity, stroke location, risk of aspiration, and their impairment of oral intake for diurex. Then we get this press score ranging from zero to 10, zero being the best, 10 being the worst. So we'll say, um, for example's sake, that we yield like a press of six, six out of 10. We're going to get four percentages pertaining to the patient's swallowing function at day seven post-stroke and day 30 post-stroke. So in this example of a press of six, this patient, when we calculate and look at the numbers, would have a 69% chance likelihood of having impaired oral intake seven days post-stroke. They would have a 100% chance, so pretty much certain likelihood that they're not returning to their pre-stroke oral diet seven days post-stroke. They would have a 23% chance of ongoing impaired oral intake 30 days post-stroke, and they would have a 69% chance of not returning to their pre-stroke diet 30 days post-stroke. So that gives us a lot of expectations and information once we add up the patient's score in terms of how to apply this and make it relevant to the medical team. I find that I'm mostly giving information about risk of impaired oral intake to the medical doctors and helping make nutrition decisions that way. So in this case, this patient with a press of six looks pretty involved seven days post-stroke. So I mean, 69% chance they have impaired oral intake, basically 69% chance they're not going to be on an oral diet. They're probably going to be tube feeding dependent, maybe a good candidate for NG tube feeding or short-term temporary um, feeding tube. And then it seems like they get a little bit better 30 days post-stroke their risk of ongoing impaired oral intake goes down quite a bit to 23%. So more than likely, they're going to be on some kind of oral diet 30 days post-stroke. Given that there's a 69% chance that they won't be on their pre-stroke diet, it probably won't be regular solids and thin liquids, but a good chance that they'll at least be on something. I find from my experience that I'm mostly giving information about impaired oral intake at seven days and 30 days to the doctors and the medical team. And I'm more so giving information about returning to pre-stroke diet at seven days and 30 days to like the patient and the family. Cause that's a question I get a lot in acute care of when will this go away? When will my swallowing be normal again? And this is just one tool that we have that I can say to people, well, when people like yourselves have been studied with your similar kind of clinical features, more likely than not, I wouldn't expect you to progress all the way back to a regular diet in a month. It may be a few more weeks, but we'll keep working on it and addressing it in therapy and 
So overall, it's been a really nice tool to get some specific data for our patients and for the medical team. Do you think the patients and their families appreciate that sort of feedback, Carolyn? I think so a lot. I think it helps them sometimes make goals of care decisions. If it's a case Mm -hmm. where it's likely to be really persistent or severe dysphagia, sometimes people may choose a more comfort-oriented approach maybe. Sometimes people just like for it to be realistic so they know if they're going to take their loved one home, am I going to have to be managing tube feedings? What can I expect to purchase? And just to have those conversations because so much changes in acute care day-to-day, it's nice to have some expectations down the road weeks out and just have some information about what might be likely. Yeah. I just think of some like really contentious care plan meetings that I used to be a part of where it's like, I wish I would have known it was going to take this long, or I wish I would have known, you know, what I was up against. And I think, you know, having these sort of, you know, not, not a crystal ball, but sort of these parameters to just help say, you know, it may be a little longer than you're anticipating. So, yeah. Any kind of data is helpful in our field that's still so relatively young. Dysphagia in a medical setting and speech pathologists taking ownership of that is young, at least in the United States, Marion. I think we really only took ownership of that in like the 70s or 80s. So the more data and tools that we can have to prognosticate and give realistic input to the medical team, I think is really helpful. I also think that um, um, frequently medical doctors and stroke physicians, they, they dodge these discussions with patients because um, it's a difficult topic. And mainly stroke physicians frequently con- um, consider um, speech, uh, language or uh, motor problems, um, but they disregard a bit swallowing. Although this is, this is such a huge impact on the quality of life of our patients and also on, on all the overall outcome and the risk of infections. Um, so I um, really hope that with this tool, it will be easier for physicians to, and also for speech pathologists to lead these discussions and, and inform the patients about realistic expectations. I'm curious, Marianne, do you and your team have any kind of cutoff where if it's a greater than 50% chance of an impaired oral intake at day seven or day 30, then consider um, an NG tube or a PEG tube? Or is there any kind of number cutoff or threshold, I guess? So we... Um, do use uh, NGT tubes quite quite frequently, uh, very early on, because they're usually quite well tolerated, and we do not wait too long with, with those. Um, and it's usually a, a press score of around five to six points where we um, decide um, to, to place an NGT tube. With PEC tubes, uh, we're much uh, more restrictive, uh, because this is an invasive procedure, um, and it's, it may have higher risks of, of bleeding, infection, perforation, and so on. So uh, we're much more restricted. And we usually also don't make these decisions in the, in the first days, um, but we usually wait for the first week. Um, so we usually make this decision for, for a PEC placement in the uh, second week after stroke. And we usually require the patients to have uh, relatively high press scores to, to um, qualify for a PEC placement, which is around eight to nine points. Um, and if it's somewhere in between, if it's uh, around six to seven, uh, we usually just monitor the patient and see how, how swallowing develops. And now um, here comes, uh, here comes um, the opportunity for some interesting developments because we usually wait for around seven days until we make the decision for, for PEC placement. We can... Um, recalibrate the score uh, with some new data after seven days. Uh, so, so we've acquired some data uh, in this study that we've published uh, recently, also seven days after um, stroke onset. And now we're trying to use this data um, to improve our prediction for PEC placement. 
And so obviously after seven days, you have much more information about the patient. You know whether swallowing has recovered or not, how severely it is impaired. You know how severe the stroke um, uh, deficits are. Um, and you can use this information to sort of improve your predictions. So we're just working on this at the moment um, to have something like a late press score um, that can be evaluated around seven days after stroke to improve the prediction and to improve the quality of the prediction for pack feeding uh, seven days after stroke. And um, our first results show that this can be done and it's actually more accurate than the initial score. Um, so this may, may give us in future some additional information to guide pack feeding in uh, the second week after stroke. And that sounds really applicable to different levels of care, at least in the United States. I'm not sure all the rehab settings in Switzerland, but that sounds more applicable to like inpatient rehab settings or subacute rehab where patients are going immediately after the hospital stay. And nice to have some more data that's a little farther out from the acute event. One thing that my team and I did note when we go through and um, look at all the numbers and the four percentages of likelihood for impaired oral intake and return to pre-stroke diet at seven days and 30 days post-stroke is we did take note that a press score of nine or 10, the top two scores, that both of those do yield a greater than 50% chance. So more likely than not of ongoing impaired oral intake, even 30 days post-stroke. So more than likely those patients with those very high press scores are still not going to be able to progress to an oral diet safely, even 30 days post. So that's been just a conversation between our team and sometimes even going to our stroke neurologists and letting them know about those risk factors. And if it makes sense with the whole clinical picture and maybe the patient being able to not participate in therapy very well due to cognitive or language troubles or level of arousal, then potentially being warranted for a PEG placement sooner rather than later, um, if it makes sense with the clinical picture and the goals of care. Absolutely. And uh, obviously, um, the press score only generates a number, but this needs to be made, uh, put into context uh, with um, the overall uh, decisions of the patient, uh, um, the overall situation, and um, also the wishes of the, of the patient, which is obviously the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I love that you said that, Marion. I think the strength of the study is that um, um, we had external validation for, for the model, uh, which gives us some confidence that um, this can be used externally in other centers and that um, the results may be applicable to, to other places, not only to the hospital where this was developed. Um, now, we must say this was all done in Switzerland. So um, it's um, not clear whether this is generalizable to other places in the world uh, where they have sort of other approaches for dysphagia rehabilitation uh, or use or are not used uh, to using these scales and so on. Um, but I, I'm quite confident that the model, um, the parameters involved in the model do make sense. Um, they are uh, reasonable and pretty easy to assess. So I think this should be, able, should be possible to use the model in, in many different places around the world. And we've had some wonderful experiences. We were approached by people from, from the UK, from the US, uh, from uh, Australia. I think there was also a project going on using the, the press model in New Zealand. Uh, so this is really wonderful to get, get some feedback on, on this research and to see that um, this was something that people picked up in different places and they, they've used it actually practically, which is wonderful to see. Now, obviously, there are a couple of limitations. And, and um, uh, one of the most important ones is that this only is validated for ischemic stroke. And we do not really know whether hemorrhagic stroke um, behaves in the same way. So that there would need to be a different study to assess um, the model or a different model in hemorrhagic stroke. And clearly that, that can be a very different uh, trajectory in hemorrhagic stroke uh, compared to ischemic stroke uh, regarding to rehabilitation. 
Now, I've mentioned it already that um, the model performs very well for the first seven days and uh, the uncertainty rises after 30 days. So um, the model is, is quite good at predicting um, the risks of having long-term impairments 30 days after stroke, um, but it's not as, as good as obviously uh, within the first seven days. So there may be needed some, so, so there may be some improvements needed. And as I said already, we will we'll be working on this and uh, we'll be trying to improve the model by adding some, some additional parameters to improve this prediction of uh, the need of pack feeding. I think those are the two most important things, right? Oh, absolutely. My team has found it very sound, just as one tool in our toolbox, one piece of information. So it's you can almost get most of this information really from chart review. So it's not like we're walking into the room and calling them a press of nine and they have to get a peg, you know. Um, but it's been a very helpful tool in our back pocket to use just to inform the medical team and ourselves and the patients as well. So we've really appreciated having just more data up our sleeve. Yeah. One limitation I need to mention is that um, uh, the app that you've, that you've mentioned is currently not available on the App Store, on the Apple App Store. Um, and this is only due to some technical issues with the App Store, some account problems, really. And the app is completely fine. And, and I got a bunch of really worried emails by people. Where is the app? We can't find it. Uh, what can we do? And... Honestly, it's taken us uh, way too long to resolve this issue, but I'm finally in contact with the uh, developer support uh, from Apple, and, and we hope that we can uh, resolve the issues with our account very soon. But it's still available for Android. So as long as you have Android phones, you can use that. Yeah. Or you can use the, the figures on the website. Yeah. Yeah, the figures in the research article are pretty easy to follow too. Figures two, figures three. So you can still glean all the right numbers. I made, when the app was down from my team, I made um, just little smart phrases or shortcuts in our electronic medical records. So it all comes up really easily and auto-populates. So I'd be happy to share that with Teresa or in the show notes and someone could copy that into their medical record too. Yes, that would be wonderful. Thank you. You're doing such an amazing job. (laughs) No problem. So I would start by encouraging clinicians, speech pathologists to just start reading like one article a week and noting the really high quality studies and noting who is citing them and who they're citing. And you can kind of quickly get down this rabbit hole of really good research and and keep those names in your back pocket. I do set monthly PubMed email alerts for me for my favorite topics pertaining to dysphagia and hospitalized patients and my favorite authors, just to name a few, Dr. Katrina Steele, Dr. Inessa Humbert. Martin Brodsky, Emily Plowman, and of course, adding Dr. Marion Galovic to my um, list now. And um, your organization's medical library can probably help you set up solid search terms to yield what you want, and they'll probably be able to help you access journals as well. Most research articles have an email address for a principal investigator or corresponding author. So Dr. Galovic was the one in his paper, very easy to reach out to. And I would just encourage people to not be afraid to do that because when you're coming from a place of curiosity and respect. I've only had positive responses and it's nice to kind of keep in touch with the researchers too and get to touch base with how you're able to apply their work. Absolutely. Researchers love it when you get in touch with them. Uh, I think this is the nicest thing that can happen. Um, once once you publish your paper and then somebody asks you a question about it or somebody's interested in your paper, I think that's, that's a huge honor and we love getting emails. So do not hesitate to contact us. Good. I've, I've definitely found that with the podcast too. It's, it's, I'm always like, God, should I reach out to this person? Should we? And then we do. And they're like, I'd love to come on. It's always, it's always so exciting. So I guess you guys are in the process of writing other papers about prognosis more than seven days post-stroke and ongoing peg needs more than one month. Yeah. So um, 
we have we have prepared most of the results and I, I think now it's just sort of streamlining it and writing up the manuscript and um, hope it's going to be ready to go in the next next months uh, but usually this whole process takes takes ages until we find a journal that finally accepts it and this has been this has been difficult for for swallowing research so I've done also a lot of research on epilepsy and I must I must tell you that is much easier and it it did surprise me a lot because uh, because when we were writing um, these um, papers on, on swallowing recovery after stroke, I mean, it's such an important topic and it has really huge impact on, on, on the patient's outcome. And frequently we just got, got response from the editors um, in general neurology journals or in, in specialized stroke journals that this was not interesting enough and that we should go to, uh, to journals that are more specialized for, for swallowing problems. And I was, I was very surprised by, uh, by this approach. So it's, Publishing, publishing on, on swallowing problems is, is, is not easy. And so I encourage everybody to persevere because uh, this is really an important topic. It's bananas. It's absolutely bananas. It's not, not important to swallow, I guess, to these people. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, you guys. This has been such a, I, I love this conversation. Um, any, any final thoughts, Caroline, you want to add? One thing that my team and I found out we weren't sure initially is when you're adding up a patient's press score and getting, for example, like a press of six, it doesn't matter how you get to that, how, what combination of points they have to create a press of six, it's still six. So all the numbers stay the same for seven day and 30 day outcomes, which just keeps it nice and easy and streamlined, I'd say. Dr. Galovic's article has a really nice um, electronic appendix too. If folks want to check that out, if you're reading online, you can just follow the hyperlink to the supplemental materials and they have a breakdown, a clinical example of calculating a press score and using that to help make clinical decisions. So I just thought all their materials were really awesome. My team has really responded well to rolling it out. The physicians have certainly responded well just by having more data. So it's been a great experience and I'm so grateful to Marion for sharing all this information with us. Awesome. Any, any final words from you, Marion? No, I think it was such a pleasure to be here. And um, as I've said already a couple, couple of times, it's just, just so nice to get feedback. And um, it's encouraging for, for researchers to, uh, to see that uh, whatever you publish just doesn't end up in sort of um, a dusty library, but is actually read by people and, and maybe helpful in some cases. So that's, that's really encouraging. Yeah, and actually implemented into clinical practice. Imagine that. Yeah, unbelievable. Who would have thought that when I wrote it? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, please, Marion, I'd love to have you back when, you, when you've got some new and exciting things that some journal will want to accept because they find it interesting. So, yeah, so, so please do. <laughs> All right. Thank you both so much. This was wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for having us. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.